on earth are we? Why in heaven are we here? And how to make sense of this mess of our humanness and perhaps even transcend it. Welcome everyone. From whatever nation state or emotional state you might be in, dawn of an era of well-being is the place to tune in. We're gonna deep dive into uplift with insight. And I'm thrilled to welcome our two formidable hosts. Two-time Nobel Peace Prize nominee, Professor Irvin Laszlo, is a world-renowned philosopher and systems scientist, the author, co-author, or editor of 101 books that have appeared in a total of 23 languages. He's also written several hundred papers and articles in scientific journals and popular magazines. He is a member of numerous scientific bodies, including the International Academy of Science, the World Academy of Arts and Science, and he's the founder of the Laszlo Institute of New Paradigm Research and the Club of Budapest, and the recipient of various honors and awards, such as Goya Peace Prize, the Assisi Mandir of Peace Prize, the Luxembourg Peace Prize, and he received honorary PhDs from the United States, Canada, France, Finland, and Hungary. And Fred Sal is a business leader, futurist, practitioner of Eastern wisdom and Western science, author and chairman of the Family Business Network's Ambassador Circle, and founder of ITEA Institute and Octave Institute, where ancient wisdom and quantum science are fused to create a platform for people to achieve a purposeful life that's mindfully lived at new levels of consciousness and freedom. I like to start each episode by acknowledging our worldwide audience, of whom some are lucky enough to be thriving in this remarkable new environment, but so many are not. It's challenging. Dawn of an Era of Wellbeing podcast and book hopes to offer real comfort to the global community, helping us awaken to a new paradigm and a new era of well-being. We encourage you to not only read the book and hear the podcast, but to feel them to start awakening your senses to different ways of perceiving beyond just our eyes, just our ears, because this is the space that Irvin and Fred refer to as consciousness. That's our comfort zone for the long term. So before I introduce today's important guest, Gary Jacobs, let's talk about uh, the intro of this wonderful book. I'm going to read an excerpt. The explosion of population, social discrimination, economic gaps, geopolitical instability, religious conflicts, natural disasters, and health crises all point towards the crisis of a world operating on the basis of the Newtonian mechanistic paradigm. The first industrial revolution was based on the harnessing of steam. It was followed by the second industrial revolution based on the uses of electricity. This was followed by the third industrial revolution based on information and driven by the development of the information sciences. The revolution of information is now reaching a point where technological advancement enabled the invention of machines that can outperform human beings in speed and precision. This progress in technology marked the advent of the fourth industrial revolution, hallmarked by artificial intelligence. Our fourth revolution will continue to reshape technology and revolutionize human life on the planet, blurring the distinction between physical, digital, and biological systems and processes, quote unquote. Irvin, good morning. Is this an aha moment, as Oprah Winfrey likes to say, or an uh-oh moment, or both, or, or neither? 
Irvin, what well, do you Alison, think? It's a moment. It's a memorable moment. <laughs> it's a memorable moment in any case. And I'm so delighted to have the chance now to talk with Gary Jacobs, from a long, long friend and whose, whose, whose work I admire, who is so creative and so uh, one of the few persons who is not only a great thinker, but a great activist, a great doer also, organizer of this World Academy of Arts and Science and head of it. And that's a wonderful, wonderful person. I know you will introduce him. Let me just say that this moment of discussion with him is certainly a memorable moment which will remain with me and hopefully we remain with all the people who look at this broadcast and will think about and discuss it for weeks and months to come. Indeed. Well said. I think we're going to have a, a lot of little aha moments in these many weeks and months and perhaps years to come. So on that dynamic note, let me introduce our very special guest, J Gary Jacobs. Gary is an American business and economic consultant living in India. He is chief executive officer of the World Academy of Art and Science, chairman of the board and CEO of World University Consortium, managing editor of Cadmus Journal, vice president of the Mother Service Society, a social science research institute based in Pondicherry, India, and partner in Mira International, a consulting firm based in Napa, California, which provides management consulting and training services to small, medium, and large corporations in a wide range of industries in the US, Europe, and Asia. He is author of books on business management, international development, Indian development, a novel on personal growth and spirituality in business, and hundreds of articles and reports on economic and social development, education, international security, global governance, psychology, science, literary criticism, and spirituality. Gary Jacobs, welcome. That is a handful, if ever. Alison, thank you so much for your introduction, and Erwin, for your warm words and warm greeting. I'm just delighted to be here with you uh, uh, to discuss this important topic today. Thank you for asking. Well, here we go. I'm going to put forth the, uh, this question because we're, we're talking about thinking right now. That's an interesting place to start. Um, if thinking is about putting things together to form a relationship, as you've often referred to, Gary, for example, lightning plus thunder equals a storm. Is there such a thing as, quote unquote, pure thinking, unbiased and devoid of inter interpretation? And where does pure thinking come from? Is that what we might refer to as consciousness? Gary? Well, thanks for raising one of my favorite topics. I think one of the, the most important topics that we can be <clears throat> discussing at this time in the world. Because unless we get back to the roots of the way we think, I don't think we're going to find the solutions we need for the challenges we face today. Uh, my way of looking at it is that there are many types of mental activity. Uh, that What we use the word thinking for is when we use words and concepts in our mind, and as you say, we try to combine two or more things together and see a relationship between them, uh, like between thunder and lightning, which you uh, mentioned in your paper. Uh, and we build more and more complex attempts to synthesize and relate things together, which 
the mind sees as separate from one another because the thinking mind looks at the world in terms of lots of separate things. It doesn't, it's not able to fully integrate. It's not able to fully connect things. I think there are higher ways of mental awareness or of consciousness that don't rely on the sequence of, the linear sequence of words which I'm using now to start and represent an idea, which of course is why the famous adage, a picture is worth a thousand words, because you can present something in a totality uh, through images that you can't do uh, through verbal language. And there are higher ways of mental awareness where there is no use of words at all, uh, where the, the, the awareness is in silence. Uh, famous adage that there's nothing, Sri Aurobindo's adage, there's nothing the mind can know by thinking that it can't know better or more fully in silence. I have stopped there because we can go on uh, to to more and more levels. But I think I've, I hope I've answered the question. The way we think and the way we use our mind and our is not the only way of that we can know. And those higher forms of knowing, I believe, are what you're referring to as consciousness. Until it ultimately reaches the level where we don't know something as separate from ourself or outside ourself, the ultimate knowing is when we know it by identity with it, when we're, we're identified and one with it. Between our mental division of the whole world into tiny fragments that we're trying to combine and integrate together, and that holistic integral knowing by identity, there are many stages in between. And I think it's time for us to move on beyond the analysis, beyond the mechanistic or what Irwin refers to as the Newtonian view of reality, uh, to try to see things in a much more integral, interconnected way. Gary, this is indeed the, the need of, of our, our time, of our age, to, to meet this requirement. Now, you live in India. You have worked in the United States and in Europe and in many parts of the world. Uh, how do you th see the Indian approach to this. You know, in the book, in uh, the, the dawn of a new era of well-being, we discuss the, the Western approach in general, and we discuss the Chinese approach in particular. Now, I would like to so much hear something from you, how you think about an Indian approach to try to get to a better world, to get, for example, this kind of thinking that you are discussing. How could that thinking spread through the mentality so the values, the intuitions that are typical of this age-age-old civilization in India. How, how could that be brought to fruition? Uh, that's a profound question. Uh, when I speak of India, I'd just like to clarify, because the India that I see, I've been here on and off for a good part of my life for the last 50 years. And what I see on the surface of India is not that far different than what I see in California or New York or Geneva or other places, because the people I deal with are very much westernized in their education and their outlook in terms of knowing the world. There are deeper levels of Indian tradition, which definitely have gone way beyond the analytic 
divisive way of understanding reality, the separative way of understanding reality. And I have benefited so much by contact with this culture uh, over the long term that it's more like the air you breathe and the atmosphere you take in than any particular thing I can uh, uh, point to. Uh, but the, the knowledge that life is, a, is oneness, it's not a bunch of divided separate things, uh, is not only there in the philosophy and in the ancient literature and scriptures of India, but it's there in the consciousness of the country. Uh, and I've learned it through a long, slow process, uh, not through the intellectual education or the, uh, the the discussions that go on, but by the deeper perception that's there in the culture that drives their values. And I think uh, it's of immense value, uh, but I don't, I'm not, I'm not particularly, uh, it's not so much to claim an Indian view of things as opposed to a Western view. Uh, I think the development of the mind, the development of the thinking mind, which the West has done so phenomenally over the last 500 years, so systematically in terms of science, in terms of education, in terms of technology, is a particular way of using our, developing a part of our consciousness and perhaps mistaking it for the whole. Uh, as you have written, uh, the analysis and the, the, the accomplishments of science are really remarkable, and they have shed light and insight on uh, so many of the processes of nature. Unfortunate, and I think that's had its place in our evolution. Unfortunately, uh, we've come to believe that that's the only way we can know things, is take them up, divide them up, take them apart, and then try to piece them back together, as if everything is one big giant machine of separate pieces. And what's, I think that the most serious part of that is, that's what we've done with ourselves as well. Uh, I'm born into a highly individualistic culture where we starting point is that we're separate from everything and everybody else. We're separate from the world and we're separate from everybody else. And as we grow up, we become more and more separate because we become, quote, individualized, which I think is a misuse of the, uh, the word. Whereas in India uh, and uh, in, in other Asian cultures of which I'm much less qualified to speak, there's a much greater sense of that our separateness is only one part of the greater reality of which we are all a part. Unfortunately, I think in the West, and especially I'm speaking of uh, the United States, because we've taken individualism to an extreme of thinking it's each of us by ourselves, and if we want, we can relate to other pieces of the puzzle. Uh, that that consciousness is not is is not what I find here. There's a deeply embedded sense of connectivity, of relationship, uh, socially and in terms of life. And I remember once we had a conversation, Erwin, at your place in Tuscany uh, about life. Uh, one of the most surprising experiences for me was what I learned about life by coming to India. 
because the Western view of life that I grew up with is life, there's no really such a thing as life. There are lots of lives, uh, and we happen to be thrown together, and life is something separate in each of us from everybody else. But here there's a, a vibrant sense that there is a life, a, an interconnected life or reality uh, that connects everything with everything else and connects whatever we are inside with the world around us. I think that's what we're having to rediscover uh, through our science and through the problems we're confronting today, whether it's COVID or climate change, global warming, or uh, any of the other challenges that, uh, that you mentioned uh, in your book, uh, that we are looking at things from the outside and missing the fact that fundamentally everything is related to everything else. Everything is interconnected. And of course, the ecologists have been trying to tell us this uh, for decades, uh, that uh, it's not just that we're all connected like a big system or a switchboard or a microprocessor. We're all connected because at a deeper level, we're inseparable from one another. And I think that's very important for two reasons. One, because the thinking we do based on our separateness is a very flawed and limited type of understanding. If science and education have given us great discoveries and advances in the world, and we credit uh, our, our mental capacities for that, I think it's equally appropriate to credit our problems with the deficiencies in the way we're thinking and the way uh, we're educating. Uh, and we have to find a way to compensate for this extreme fragmentation of reality uh, that is not what the great, the great psychologists and the great spiritual leaders meant by individuality. They didn't perceive the great, like Carl Jung, didn't perceive individuality as each person becoming more and more separate uh, from everybody else. Uh, he perceived it as each person recognizing their own fullest potentials in connectivity and relationship with the world around them. And I, I think we've lost, to a great extent, that sense of relationship. So the way we think has a lot to do with the way we perceive ourselves and the way we, we, we relate to the world around us. And that the problems we're facing are problems of disconnect, uh, disconnect with the greater reality of which we're a part. Gary, you know, I, I'm reminded what you say, of course, everything that I say, 100%, 1,000% I underwrite, it's exactly right. But I I'm, I'm want to come back to this idea of, of India, which struck me always. I had the pleasure to visit there a number of times, you know, worked for Auroville on the board, and, you know, that's next to Pondicherry. I also visited the ashram in Pondicherry. But I, I have a sense that not only at the highest level, which you have in Pondicherry and you have in Auroville, but on the level of everyday people, the Indian mentality is more collective, more community. There's one, one little episode that always comes to my mind when we talk about this in, in Chennai. It was called Madras at the time. Uh, there was a, a, a tremendous intersection in the middle of one of the uh, central parts of the town, a constant jam 
constantly people hooting and tooting and honking and shouting, shouting at each other and, and, and everything coming to a half a slop, stop. Uh, and then they built an overpass so it could go fast. And nobody went on it. And the Indians want to be below. They like to honk. There is a sign on the, on, on the back of the car, round horn. You know, it doesn't mean, uh, you know, we are being aggressive. It means I am here. I want to be, uh, be in touch with you, you know. And, and uh, that's, it's a different mentality. We need a communal mentality. It won't be exactly as the Indian mentality, but we need to overcome the separation that you talk about, you know. We don't just sit in our own car and clothes in an air-conditioned place and then listen to a headphone or something else completely separated of from the rest of the world, which is typical of the metropolis life in the Western world, in the modern world altogether. In India, there is a meeting of people, meet in touch, in touch of people with, with each other. This sense of community, which is there in the third world, in many parts of the world, the so-called third world, I mean, in, in, the, in, the, in the more traditional world, that is, is, could be so valuable if it came about. How could that sense of community be installed, instilled in people in the Western world as well? How could we recover our sense that we want to live together? We want to create a, a community. I think New York City has a lot of things already about, about villages within the city itself, not only Greenwich Village, but neighborhood environments. And that development is coming to a stop now with COVID, you know. We can't so gather together as much as we wanted to. But there are possibilities. Do you see a way in which our, our thinking of each other or being one could be expressed through our actual activity and in terms of our activity could reinforce our sense, our intuitive sense of being one? I mean, that would be such an important element in today's world. What, what are you thinking? What are your thoughts about that? A very profound question. And I must say, I fully agree with your description of your experience in India. Uh, when I'm here, when I'm relating to people here, I feel so connected. The idea of being alone, even when you're physically alone, uh, uh, which is something I grew up with in a small nuclear family with just, you know, four of us. Uh, uh, it's just, you don't feel it here. At least I never, I haven't felt it here for 50 years. Uh, there's such a sense of connectedness. There's such a sec sense of relationship. There is a great, much greater sense of connectivity and responsibility of people for each other, uh, which is, which is part of the Indian culture. I, I think India is somewhere halfway between because the Indian spiritual traditions have an element of everybody going on their own way, uh, individually, spiritually, but the culture is one of intense connectivity, relationship, and commitment. And it, it, it's different today than it was 50 years ago when I came here because you have so much of urbanization and people moving away from the extended family uh, and, and traveling overseas and so many things. But I think it is still fundamental uh, to the culture. Uh, and it's, it's fundamental to the spirituality uh, of the country as well. Now, you asked 
the question is how can that, uh, what can we learn from that? I, I have learned an enormous amount from that uh, in, in my 50 years. You're asking how can we operationalize that uh, and extend it? Uh, and I, it's a wonderful question. Uh, and I think thinking, thinking does have uh, something very important to do with it. We are being compelled, the world is being compelled to understand our relationships uh, and see not just the competition. Competition is a small part of what drives the world. Even competition is not possible except for the enormous relationship, uh, cooperation that we have. It's a way that the West has characterized our activities and relationships to emphasize the competition. But the modern economy doesn't exist today except for the vast uh, cooperative basis on which it's based, whether it's cooperation in law or like 20,000 20, banks around the world each using the same system for visa transfers or all of us using the same internet uh, and all. It's a Western way of extreme thinking where we're seeing the contrasts rather than seeing the totality and relationship. And that's what we've been talking about. But I think for what you're, and, and therefore, uh, a change in thinking, not only in the West, but I think in the educational process here is absolutely needed. In the first week of December, we're having our fifth international conference on future education from the World Academy and the World University Consortium. And we're really uh, trying to look at how do we restructure our educational system to stop fragmenting the wholeness of reality into innumerable isolated airtight compartments, which we call silos or disciplines. At last count, a few years ago, the U.S. had more than a thousand sub-disciplines. And unfortunately, the, and they're doing that because we get so much of knowledge in so many specific areas that people become more and more specialized in order to acquire all the knowledge in a very narrow, specialized field. Unfortunately, by that very process of acquiring greater expertise in the specific, we lose more and more the, the, the perception of the totality and the relationship between things. And that's why we've been calling very much for, we need a strong shift from disciplinary spe specialization to transdisciplinary relational understanding. As a business consultant, I know, uh, and I experienced that What's taught in the business schools is not the reality in which companies operate. It's an abstract uh, representation of a part of it. And the problems we have come because we don't understand the world we live in. Maybe a more dramatic example would be we've run a few conferences with IEEE, which is the world's largest organization of electronic and electrical engineers including the art, those people in artificial intelligence, which you mentioned, and cognitive computing, computing. And we talked to their leaders about how the youth are being educated in the technical sciences today. They're learning more and more about the technology without any background in the impact of technology on society. 
or on people or on the lives of people. This kind of extreme disconnect, that schizophrenia uh, between the specializations is characteristic. So one, one of my answers for all of us, including in India, we run a school here, by the way, where, we're, where the government is, is pushing the disciplinary uh, standardized testing and uh, all of the fragmentation, and we're trying to go back to, uh, to, 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 to bring this back together again, to cross the links and relationships between disciplines, but it applies to the whole world. So I would say thinking is one, and education is certainly a, a second, uh, but, there's, but that's not going to be enough, because at least the education as we're doing it today is really a mental education. It's an education of the mind about subjects. What we really need is a shift to a person-centered education, an education that's goal is the development of the whole personality and not just a mentality as something isolated. And that requires the capacity for relationship. I think one of the hopeful things about the world we live in today, which you referred to, the, up, the upside of this is, we have the most relational society and the most relational generation in history. When I was growing up, I could count the number of friends I had, maybe on one or two hands, at least the ones that I interacted with uh, on a regular basis. And when I moved from New York uh, at the age of 15 to Los Angeles, uh, and then up to UC Berkeley, my, my alma mater for university, and then to Hawaii, and then to India, each time I lost contact with all the people I had known. Today, the youngsters, they go from Pondicherry to Chennai to uh, MIT to Southern California and then to work in Microsoft, and they keep accumulating the relationships and staying in touch with them. Uh, they have overcome the, the limits of space and time, uh, and they are much more relational. I believe this is the most relational generation we've had. Maybe they have not all grown up with the value of that relationship, but that's the culture. We're getting a global culture of relationship, and I think that is a strength for us. At a deeper level uh, than that, I think something, uh, the human-centered, the person-centered, the transdisciplinary uh, type of uh, urge, uh, education, and the relational organization, organization that doesn't look at itself as something separate from everybody else or everything else, but in relationship to everything else. And that's what I do with my companies when I talk to them. You're a child of the society. You meaning the company is a child of the society. Your, your growth and success and future depends on the extent to which you maintain that positive relationship with the society around. So I think one other element comes out of this, uh, a, a word that is very much used these days. I wrote a book on it 35 years ago in, uh, in management, the word values. Uh, the word values, uh, to me, represents uh, the relational truths of, uh, of life. Uh, I'm not limiting it to moral values or ethical values or, or legal values. What we call that, why values are valuable, they have, their origin is spiritual. 
because they're based on a wise perception that we really are, the reality really is in, indivisible and interconnected. And the values tell us that harmony is achieved by respecting certain principles of relationship, of action, uh, and existence. And the rising recognition of values in business, for example, over the last 35 years uh, is significant. When I wrote about it 35 years ago, what are you talking about? This is business school. You know, this is the uh, this is business. The, the value is profit, but it's never really been that way. It's been the way it's been taught. I've traced the growth of companies over a century and seen the thing that really held them together and gave them their strength was their values of commitment to something uh, greater uh, than themselves and understanding in some respect, in some way, understanding uh, the truths of relationship. The World Academy, for example, was started in 1960. You're a, a member, uh, or a long-time member before I uh, was even. Uh, it was founded by eminent intellectuals like Einstein and Bertrand Russell and Robert Oppenheimer, who had developed the, the atomic weapon and the the Manhattan Project. And why did they do this? Because they saw they were all involved with, in one way or another, they were involved with the development of the atomic weapons in the nuclear age. And when they did that, they thought they were doing something to save humanity. And 10 years later, they saw that they've created a monster. Uh, and, and Oppenheimer, who was the most respected scientist in America and a hero in America, suddenly was called a traitor because he was speaking against the government policy of a nuclear arms race. Uh, I think that science came of age or began to come of age when it said, we cannot live in the ivory tower. We cannot simply invent things because we can invent them and it's up to other people to see how they're used. When the scientists and the artists, the intellectuals came together and said, we have a responsibility for what we have created. And we must be sure, not only that we create the right thing, but we create it with the right motive. Not just for a career, not just for fame or a Nobel Prize, but we create something that's really going to be beneficial to humanity. And that was the idea that the Academy had in bringing science and art together. It doesn't mean that the physicists and the artists are exchanging views on their specializations. It, it was a realization that the objective way of knowing reality, which science has taught us, is not the whole of reality. It's only one side. The subjective human emotive dimension, the value-based uh, view, is absolutely equally or more important. And when we separate science from art, we separate uh, information from humanity. We get science running uh, in all different directions, uh, and sometimes even with the best of intentions, leading to the worst of consequences. So I think we need to bring, we need to desecularize our society and our thinking. We've gone too far. I don't say we shouldn't have gone beyond the, the, the Reformation and all the progress of the Enlightenment 
and getting, uh, we had to move beyond the religious traditions of the past, but we've got to reconnect the ourselves with the subjective values on which uh, our life is, is based. Otherwise, uh, we see all of the problems that come from it. If we're going to treat the earth as simply a resource to be exploited, uh, we destroy our own home uh, and we destroy life on it. Uh, and now we have even some very famous people saying we got to go to, to Mars <laughs> and we should go there. If we cannot make it on Earth, <laughs> we cannot make it anywhere. I mean, we, we may have the only planet in the universe, certainly the only one in the solar system, that is really perfectly, ideally designed for a flowering of the highest human existence. And if we're going to spoil this one, uh, certainly we're not going to do better in a place where there's no oxygen and there's no water and there's no soil to grow crops on. Well, Gary, this is, is a last thought here on this import, importantissimo, as you would say in Italy, conversation. I'm, I'm interested in, and I want to just add a comment on to this notion of relationship, you know, relationship. The question is, what kind of relationship is it? If I, bow, if I end with my skin, and you end with your skin, and then we are bouncing ping-pong-pong balls at each other, you know. It's a kind of relationship between two separate entities, but those entities don't come together. They just have a minor, minor little impulse about each other. So this kind of external relationship, which is the main element in education, bringing people together, but together in contact, that doesn't mean really becoming together. It doesn't mean becoming one. We are creating not whole people, we are creating experts. Now, my, uh, my son, uh, some years ago, came up with this fun definition of an expert, which you probably know. X is the unknown factor, and the spurt is, is a drip under pressure. And so <laughs> it's, it's, not just, it's not just enough to be an expert how to become whole, how to become one. It seems to me this, nowadays, the emerging ideas about the alternative cultures of this oneness, of this sense of belonging, <clears throat> even bringing up the idea of an unrelenting and unconditional love for each other is, is part of the, our sense of belonging together. This is far more than a relationship between A and B. It's, it's a really a sense of oneness. A is B and B is A. And that's the quantum science at the same time. That distance half of the, of the, of the electron that is being projected and we, uh, on which you do experiments is not a separate entity. It seems to be the same entity projected elsewhere, you know. So ultimately there is no separation. And I think Einstein said that many times himself. It's an illusion. So this sense of community, of oneness, of being part of something larger than we are, but that larger thing is a whole. It's not just a mechanical aggregate of, of, or a heap of things. It is a whole, an integral whole, just as the body, our body, is a wholeness of itself, our cellular systems. So altogether, the human life is a whole, 
in fact, not only the human life, it is a whole with all life on Earth, as the whole system is life on Earth, basically. And we are a part of it, and not externally related. It's not something you can put in the background. It's not a collateral thing. It is the thing. It is who we, who we are. Now, thinking like the kind that you talked about, that you mentioned, that you are doing, the kind of activities that you in education, in community building, this kind of thinking is what we need in the world, what we need to carry out. Our book on the, on the, new, on the dawn of a new era of well-being, we try to bring some of these elements together. But we need people, people like you, who are active, who understand and who live it. Be the change. You are, I think, and dare to say, Gary, you are the change we want to see in the world. You have already realized that. You are realizing it, you know. Carry your example. Not by teaching people do this or do that, but allowing people to feel that, to become, some, have that kind of a mentality. It's a tremendous task. You can't do it just by words, just by telling people do this and do that, and pointing to things. You have to somehow allow people to live it. Artists do it. Artists can communicate. Poets can continue. They don't uh, look at the sunset. They describe the sunset. And then you let, it lets you feel it. So it's a, it's a big task. It's an urgent task. And it's wonderful that there are people like you and the World Academy of Art and Science and the World, World, World University, all those initiatives. And I would add the Club of Budapest, and the and the uh, the Laszlo Institute of New Paradigm Research. These are all initiatives we are trying to bring to the world, so that we can become that oneness. Without which, we'll go down. We'll go. We'll, we'll, we'll become extinct. But with that, we could perhaps come together and thrive. So at this moment, I'd like to thank you, Gary, and I'd like to thank Arizon and all the organizers who are behind the scenes for the series of podcasts. We need conversations like this, conversations that impact on people, not just on their thinking, but on their being. Thank you for your collaboration. And thank you for a wonderful experience. It's been a great pleasure talking to you both. Oh, I thank you both, Irvin Laszlo and our wonderful guest today, Gary Jacobs. I'm, I'm now thinking of um, an organization, a company, an organization like an organism. I'm now thinking of um, me as me and, not me only. I'm thinking of so many things that have to do with not necessarily divorcing ourselves from what has been, but alchemically combining them with this new way of integrating so many aspects of life that we haven't really uh, accounted for and accommodated for. And uh, I think that perhaps the arts and creativity can m represent a very important bridge to bringing us into this new paradigm, this exciting new paradigm. So once again, a very compelling note to conclude on today. And uh, I'm Alison Goldwyn with our hosts, Irvin Laszlo and Fred Sao, and today's very special guest, Gary Jacobs, inviting you to join us for more episodes of Dawn of an Era of Wellbeing, and to consider that the holiday season is fast upon us, and it may not feel like a holiday for many, uh, but this book makes a wonderful gift of uplift. 
The bravado of our ego has historically gotten the better of us. So when building a new paradigm for humankind, let's try to include humankindness. Stay tuned and stay attuned. And now to conclude our program, here are some thoughts from our co-host, Fred Sal. So the question and the topic that I have for this one is, what are your views uh, from, about interconnected life, collectivism, and also could you share more about this concept of yours that you mentioned previously, is the collective individualism from the Eastern's point of view? Oh, yes, I can do that. Um, the Chinese call it uh, yi yuan, er yuan. Yi yuan means the holistic one. Er yuan means yin and yang, the material one. And they are one. And so if you look at the Chinese uh, tradition, you see that the outside is round, which means yi yuan, and the inside is square. It has framing. So the reality is all things or with framing or separation of the material world sits within this round, which represents holistic world, or what we call the quantum net of consciousness and its expression of the universe. So uh, we perceive uh, the collectiveness or the individual uh, systemically in the material world because we see a separation and we see interaction. But in reality, it is energy and that is creating it. This is just an expression of energy clustering when consciousness interact. And so this is just a form, a holographic perception of reality and solidity. And so um, the collective is a reality. The individual is a reality inside energy flow. They're all in the no form one, but it expresses itself into a systemic relationship. So we can see interconnectivity in every relationship because its essence is whole, its expression is relationship. And when you observe it and you analyze it and to understand the relational Connectivity, we see systems. So therefore, you have understanding of uh, business system, family system, economic system, everything as an understanding of the interrelationship in this connectivity. We call it system. And we now see that every system is connected, economic, political, individual, collective, everything is connected. We're moving into bigger and bigger system of understanding how the universe expresses itself in systems. And we are inside that system. We do not exist outside of that system. Thank you so much. And there's one word that was mentioned, which is also part of this, is relationship. And one of the key things that you mentioned in passport class was relational ethics. So how is the East, how from the East points of view is revealing this relational ethics? How is it being done from the Eastern, Eastern world? Sorry. Well, yes. So, so with earlier talking about this, um, this thing, that actually we were one, and what we see it is relational, and what we see is ethics. Ethics is really um, a code of understanding that we are one, and that how we should relate uh, for mutual flourishing, or even 
for mutual coexistence, a different level. And of course, if you look at human uh, history, it could be a history of succeeding or failing human collaboration. Succeeding in collaboration, we create. Failing in collaboration, we go to war and conflict. And so uh, relational ethics is very important. Now, there's a saying in the West, right? Uh, what's above, thus below. What's within, thus without. Now, this is where the understanding of the cosmos and the universe. So the universe is an expression of cosmos. It's a material. So we see the sun, we see the earth, and it's above. And the energy of the physical is affecting us. But we also know that God is inside us, Tao is inside us, Buddha nature is inside us, that we have a layer and layer of this creation process. <clears throat> so therefore, we are in the influence of the energy of the universe, of life, but we are also in the influence of our own creative, of individual and collectivity from inside. And as we express our creativity, we create external reality. So in upside up, uh, up and down universe, in and out cosmos. The creativity is in and out, but we must understand the true reality that we are in the universe. And this up and down, in and out, is the creation process. Thank you for joining us. Dawn of an Era of Well-Being is a co-production of the Laszlo Institute, ITEA Institute, and Select Books. It's produced by Nora Cesar and Kenichi Sugihara with theme music Chimera by Piba DuPont. The book, Dawn of an Era of Well-Being, co-authored by Irvin Laszlo and Frederick Sal, is available wherever books or e-books are sold. Please subscribe to Dawn of an Era of Well-Being, the podcast, on Apple or Spotify for more fascinating guests and discussion. My name is Alison Goldwyn, founder and creative director of Synchronistory.com, a future party for the planet broadcast live worldwide, wishing you well-being till we talk again next week. <laughs>